the world's favorite tax collector who became a follower of Jesus. Join me, Pastor Hook, as we go through 28 days of Matthew. Anyway, um, so now we are in uh, Matthew chapter 5. In Matthew chapter 5, 6 and 7 is the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus goes out and gives teachings. And uh, the whole Sermon on the Mount is basically where Jesus says, you've heard this, but I say to you this. In other words, Jesus is clarifying teachings from the Old Testament. And he's going back to different parts of the Old Testament. He's saying, now you've heard it said this, but I want you to change your mind and I want you to think about this. And so he goes through chapter 5, 6, and 7. He, uh, he goes through a whole different litany of things that he wants you to think differently about. And um, quite honestly, chapter 5 has so much stuff that there's no way that I can finish that in less than about 50 hours. Um, there is so much good stuff in chapter 5. In the Sermon on the Mount, uh, it's, um, it's really a lot of good stuff. But... Uh, trying to keep this to 28 days, uh, we're just gonna go rapidly through it. So I'm just gonna talk and touch about a few things, um, otherwise we'll never get out of Matthew 5, let alone getting out of Matthew 28. Um, so I might be just talking about what is happening in Matthew 5, 6, and 7, um, and it's probably gonna go like that for the rest of, uh, well, for the rest of Matthew actually. So. Anyway, so we are here in Matthew 5. I just want to, if you're joining us uh, live, you're welcome to say hi on Facebook. Uh, that would be awesome uh, to know that you're here and uh, let other people know that you're here. Um, just looking here to see if it's on even Facebook. I don't know. All right, so I think, um, oh, well, it is. There you go. Okay, so we're going to start on Facebook. And uh, we're going to start on this. So this is Matthew chapter 5. Now when Jesus saw the crowds, so he's now starting to preach. Um, he says, uh, now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up to the mountainside and he sat down and his disciples came to him and he began to teach them. And this is what Jesus began to teach. And this first part uh, verses 3 to 10, uh, 3 through 11 is called the Beatitudes uh, because it starts out with blessed, beatitude. Um, and I'll just read, beginning in uh, verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called the children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And blessed are you when people insult you and they persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way, they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So this first part is called the, the Beatitudes up to uh, verse 11. And uh, Jesus is really changing things here. 
uh, he's giving a new way to think about the Old Testament. Uh, he's beginning to give you a new way to think about life. That's what he's telling the disciples. This is kind of the first thing, other than um, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. This is the first thing he wants to tell you. And all of these things are just so counter to the way we normally live our lives. Um, he says, blessed are you in the poor in spirit. Blessed are you when you're persecuted. Blessed are you when you're meek. Um, and what he's saying here, basically, and I, I could just spend hours on each one of these, but what he's really trying to tell you is that you are blessed when you live in the kingdom and you act in the kingdom. And blessed are you when, um, you might even say, blessed are you when afflictions come into your life. And you might say to yourself, but I don't feel blessed when afflictions come into my life. I don't feel blessed when I'm persecuted. I don't feel blessed when I'm poor in spirit. But see, the thing is, is that when these things come into your life, it is an opportunity for you to draw closer to the creator of the universe. So right now we're in this coronavirus, right? And you can look at this in two different ways. You can be fearful. You can say, uh, where, where's my food coming from? You know, where are all these things uh, that I need for the sustenance of life and how will I get through this? And you can actually spend hours and hours and hours of your life worrying about where the next thing that you need is going to come from. And some of you uh, may not even know where the next thing is going to come from. I mean, it's easy for me to say because I'm here in my house. Uh, you know, we have a little bit of food in the refrigerator. Um, you know, I have a little bit of cash sitting around. Uh, I'm not, you know, I'm not in the same situation as some people. Some people have been laid off of work. Uh, they don't know when their next paycheck is going to come in. Um, they don't know when uh, the next meal is going to show up. And there's lots of different people trying to help out. But at its root level, this is an opportunity for you to um, spend time and draw closer to God. I know that sounds crazy, um, especially if you end up in the ICU or sick or someone you love is sick. Um, those are moments in your life that are fearful. Those are moments in life that cause it a great amount of stress. And we know that stress then uh, can, can bring out the cortisol response and you can weaken your immunity system. And there's a whole bunch of things that happens with stress uh, that are not good for you normally. But also uh, stress is, um, well, you don't have to necessarily have as much stress because you are a child of God. You are in the kingdom. And another way to look at this is that God will provide at some level, God will still provide in your life. You can take a look. I mean, just walk outside and look at the beauty of his creation. Find a flower and find the beauty of his creation. Look at a, at a, an animal, a bee or, you know, a butterfly or <laughs> whatever it is. And just, just be amazed at the beauty of creation uh, the sunshine that comes in, the life that he gives, the oxygen that you breathe. I mean, there are so many different beautiful things that are out there. And, um, and one of the things that Jesus is telling us here is you may have heard it said, you know, uh, uh, Jesus is giving in the Beatitudes, he's saying, blessed are the meek, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are those who are persecuted. Those are times in your life when you can step back 
and um, say, yeah, I'm being persecuted, but I know that God's going to get me through it. And when God does, it's an incredible time to, to praise him and to see the hand of God in very, very many ways. So in this coronavirus, take, take a time to just pause and look at the beauty of the world around you and try to see the hand of God in so many different ways because it's there. Anytime there's tragedy or persecution or suffering in the world, the hand of God shows up. We've seen it time after time after time again. How many times have you talked to somebody that's going through a suffering in their life, right? They've just been diagnosed with something or um, they've lost their job or, you know, there's some sort of thing that's happened and people flood into their life and, and pray for them and support them or maybe even, you know, share stories about, you remember when you did this and that had such a meaningful impact in your life? I mean, you really find out how much God is going to surround you with love when you get into these deep, dark tribulations in your life. And uh, some people never see it until the tribulation shows up. And then all of a sudden they see the amazing hand of God and, and the people that love them and surround them and support them. And these are those opportunities. Um, if you're going through something in your life, God has not left you. Uh, he is still there with you. He loves you immensely. That It kind of parallels to what James said. Uh, in chapter one, where he said, consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance and let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete and not lacking anything. My friends, consider it pure joy whenever you have trials of any kinds. This is a trial. And what James says, and it's reflecting what Jesus says, is look for, the, look for the hand of God. You're in the kingdom, and you can never, ever get out of the kingdom. Once he's got a hold of you, he will love you and support you and care for you and walk beside you in all the battles of life and all the tribulations of life. So that's what the Beatitudes is about. And then Jesus goes on, and now um, he, uh, well, he just goes on. So this uh, chapter... Uh, Chapter 5, verses 13 through 15, 16, is this. You are the salt of the earth. This is now he's talking to, right, his, the people following him. He says, you're the salt of the earth. But salt, if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. So Jesus is saying, you're the salt of the earth. Use your saltiness to enhance the earth, uh, use your salt to, to benefit and love and bless the earth because at some point, if saltiness is not used, it's good for nothing and it's thrown out. So as long as God is giving you a gift in this earth, use it. And then he goes on, he says, you're the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on a stand and give light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good dudes, deeds, <laughs> good dudes, see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Basically, what he's saying is here is your light of the world. I have given you so much in your life, and your job is to be salt and light to the world around you. Do things um, for the world around you. Remember, we looked uh, last yesterday about Abraham. He was called. He was uh, called to be a blessing 
to others. He says, I'm going to bless you. God said to Abraham, I'm going to bless you so that you can bless others. And this is basically the same thing. You are salt and you are light. And I've given you saltiness and I've given you light so that you can shine in the world around you. Um, do good things. And when you shine and do good around you, people can't help but notice. Um, I've been trying to think, oh, who is like the most high-level Christian that you know uh, that maybe is loving the world around him or her and trying to do good and they're not trying to draw attention to themselves? As a matter of fact, they would never draw attention to, to themselves, but you kind of know that they are because um, they're just in, you know, behind the scenes doing good uh, for the world around them. And um, I, I can't really think of anybody. I mean, I can think of some people that I suspect are Christian because I can see various things are, you know, going around and they're helping in so many different ways. But a lot of these people, you just don't see them. They do good and uh, they kind of fade into the background and it's, uh, they're being salt and light into the world. And people know, people know when they do that. All right, so be salt and light. And then we're going to go to um, verse 17. And Jesus now is going to talk about the Old Testament, compare the Old Testament to a new way of thinking, right? The kingdom is come, metanoiate, repent. It's a horrible, I should just say metanoiate. Okay, I'm going to teach you this Greek word. And the Greek word is metanoiate. And it means change your mind or come to your senses, as Luther said. And it's translated into our English as repent, but repent is because metanoiate, when it was translated into the Latin, was translated as penitentia. Uh, and then from penitentia, it was translated into the English into repent. And so that's why we have that word repent. But repent isn't necessarily the right understanding of this word metanoiate. Jesus is really trying to change our mind to what it means to live in the kingdom. Uh, and so he's going to tell us a bunch of things. And in verse 17, he goes on. He says, Do not think that I've come to abolish the law and the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter nor the least stroke of the pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others according will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Wow, so there's so much here. Um, Jesus says basically that he has not come to destroy the law or change the law. He's come to fulfill the law. Everything in the Old Testament still stands. He's just now the fulfillment of that law. All right? So the Old Testament law started right with Moses, who was given the Ten Commandments, and then the law expanded to a whole bunch more, hundreds of laws that people had to follow. But we have to understand at its root, what is the law? Why did God give the law. And um, we believe that there's, uh, I believe that there's different, there's, the law serves two functions. One 
is a curb or a guardrail to protect you um, from things around you. Um, and it's also a, a punishment or to keep you on the straight and narrow, right? It's, it's a club and it's a curb. But in the law, the reason why God gave us a law in the Old Testament, people think that God gave us the law because he's mean, he doesn't like us, but God is a God of love. And if you understand that God is a God of love, then everything that he says is done out of love. So the law at its root is a law of love. So how in the world can be a law of love? The law is there because if you do the law, if you follow the law, you will live a much better life because your body was created by God and the law is the companion to your body on how you should live your life, okay? I mean, that's basically at its root, that's what the law is. It was given as law, and it was given to us so that we would know how we should live our life. I would say to you, at um, our church, we have this image of a tree, and our roots are growing. The law helps your roots grow naturally and beautifully and wonderfully so that the tree can grow. When you follow the law, you live can I say this? You live the best life that God has for you when you do that. And the punishments that come with the law are these clubs to try to keep you on the path of the law. And we always focus on the punishment. You know, are they severe punishments? Are they not severe punishments? And what are those things? And just putting the punishment aside, the punishment is there to kind of put downward pressure from God to help force you to live the law. But the law was given at its root the first 10 commandments were given to us as a way to live our life so that we can flourish and grow because we're no longer perfect. And so we need the law to kind of guide us into how to live, all right? That's the law. So what Jesus is going to say is now what follows is how I want you to think, this new way of thinking of the law. Um, but as we go through this, understand that that at its root, the law is something for us to follow to make our life better. It's not something that we do because, um, because God hates us, because God doesn't hate us. All right, so now we're going to go into the first one, um, which is this, verses 21 through 26. You've heard it said to the people long ago, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. Okay, that's Old Testament stuff. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with his brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to his brother or sister, Raka, which is kind of like a you nothing person, is answerable to the court. And anyone who says you fool will be in danger of the fire of hell. Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar First go and be reconciled to them, and then come and offer your gift. Settle matters quickly with your adversary who is taking you to court. Do it while you are still together on the way, or your adversary may hand you over to the judge, and the judge may hand you over to the officer, and you may be thrown into prison. Truly I tell you, you will not get out of it until you have paid the last penny. Okay, so this is <laughs> so much here. Um, so in the Old Testament, right, the fifth commandment is do not murder. All right, so we shouldn't murder someone. We know that. We shouldn't murder. Um, but why is it in the Old Testament? Why does God tell us not to murder someone else? And we think, well, because you're taking their life, right? You're taking something of them 
and you're getting rid of it. That is true. It's a horrible thing to murder somebody else, but it's a horrible thing in you also. If you murder someone, the guilt, unless you're a psychopath, all right, and you have no guilt whatsoever, but if you murder someone, the guilt of that, the, the shame of that, the horrendous act that you did, that you took somebody else's life, the most precious thing that God gave them is life, right? That you took that life away from them, that will haunt you for the rest of your life, all right? It will. God gave us the command to not murder, yes, so that we don't take other people's lives, so we can live in civil society together and not kill each other, but he also gave you that law so that you can live a life where you do not are not burdened by the guilt of having taken someone's life for the rest of your life. It's horrible. I mean, I haven't taken somebody's life. I don't really know anybody who's taken somebody's life, but I can imagine that if I, even manslaughter, where I accidentally took somebody's life, I would live with that guilt for the rest of my life. There's absolutely no question about it. Um, that's part of the reason why God gave us this command not to murder. Then Jesus now, now understanding that Jesus takes that and he says, so if that's what murder is, is it's not just taking somebody's life, but it's also being, you know, changing that relationship, making, you know, breaking the relationship with somebody else is also part of murder, all right? And you break someone's relationship by, you know, downgrading, you know, saying you stupid idiot. Um, or uh, when, you, when you realize that there um, is a brother or sister that has something against you, and instead of going and confronting, and he's going to talk later about how you do that, instead of going and confronting that person and saying, hey, listen, our relationship is at risk. I need to talk to you. And having that conversation, that very difficult conversation to put that relationship back on a right footing, you've just lost a relationship. It's not light, it's not murder, right? But it, in a way, it kind of destroys a relationship in your life and you suffer because, it, because you're no longer in that relationship. And then he goes on, he says, settle all those matters quickly with your adversary because you don't want to break that relationship. What Jesus is saying is that murder can be, I want you to change your mind Metanoiate, to think about what murder is. Murder at its root is being in a relationship with another person and being in a relationship with God, knowing that you love other people and that you have, all those relationships are still maintained. That's what Jesus is saying. And murder is like the overall category of that. But Jesus really is saying is that stay in relationship with other people as much as it can be with you. Forgive people if you can. Be in a relationship if you can. Then he goes on, verses 27 to 30. Uh, he moves to another commandment. He said, you've heard of it said that you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. Um, Jesus is now metanoiating us about thinking about divorce or uh, adultery. That's the sixth commandment, right? Do not commit adultery. And Jesus is saying, okay, you may think that committing adultery is like going and, um, you know, having a marital relationships with somebody else, right? That's adultery. But Jesus is saying it's actually something more than that. And this is just 
fascinating to me. Why is it that that is so important to God that it came out of the Ten Commandments that you should not commit adultery? And I think about my own life. Um, I fell in love with my wife, Jennifer, the first time I saw her, right? I was Twitter-pated to her. Um, I was uh, 16. She was 15. She may have been even 14. I don't know. She's pretty young. Um, and my, I gave my heart. I mean, it's kind of weird, but you, you know, you give your heart to somebody. Um, and that love has continued to grow through our, you know, dating years and then our married years. And, you know, now we've been, I've known her for more than 40 years in my life and I've known her for a long time, but she is the love of my life. She is the one that, uh, consumes my passion. And if I had somebody else consuming my passion, that would start to destroy the bond that I have with her. So I need to be very careful that I don't let anybody else, you know, look at somebody else to consume my passion. God gives us these, um, these laws for us so that we can live the best life that we can. And I, I live a great life. I have a wonderful relationship with my wife. And, and it's just gotten stronger and stronger and stronger. I mean, you look in nature, there's so many animals in nature that basically pair for life. Did you know that? Like the, the, the dove, I think, pairs for life. I heard the gibbon pairs for diet life. Um, believe it or not, coyotes pair for life. I think quail pair for life. There's so many animals out. The bald eagle pairs for life. Um, there are examples in God's creation of people who pair for life. And it's not like, um, you know, one of them may not die or that that relationship might actually be. But if, if you want to live the best life, the way that we are created, it's pairing for life. And we're created that way. And when you don't do that, it's not like you can't live a life and it's not your, you know, you can't live in the kingdom and all that sort of thing. God's just giving you ways to understand that the way you were created, this is the best life that I have for you. And so he does that. And he goes on in verse 31. He says, it has been said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her certificate of divorce. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, makes her the victim of adultery. And anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. So he even brings this whole thing together on a societal level. I mean, we are created to be in these bonding pairs and to live that way, to procreate that way, to have families that way. That is the best life that he has for us. And when you do adultery, yeah, there's a, there's a certificate that you can do that, but adultery or, uh, yeah, anyone who divorces his wife is part of this whole adultery thing. It's, it's, it's breaking a relationship um, that you were not created to break. We are created to be, you know, he created Adam and Eve, right? We're created to be in these long-term caring relationships for sickness or health. Um, uh, and that's the way we're created. Now, I know that there are a lot of people, maybe even people that will listen to this, that have been uh, in adulterous relationships or have, uh, have been divorced, and you've already seen the fallout from that in your life, okay? I know that there's fallout from that because I have not yet been counseled people who are thinking about divorce, who have divorced, um, and it hasn't destroyed in a lot of things, okay? It does. Um, and so you've already seen the fallout from that. But what you need to know um, from God, from Jesus, is that doesn't mean that you're out of the kingdom. 
It doesn't mean that he doesn't still love you and care for you. And it doesn't mean that you can't live the best life in the situation that you have. It's just that that thing, um, the divorce or the adultery or whatever, has somewhat, um, it needs to be mended. And the only way that that can be mended is through Jesus on the cross and his love and for his forgiveness and his love for you and understanding that you can move on from that. Uh, he doesn't want that for you. He didn't want for that. But if that's already happened, then he wants you to move forward with him in the best life that you possibly can. All right. And that he does give that forgiveness. There's no sin. There's no uh, condition. There's no thing in your life that cannot be rectified by Jesus love for you and being in the kingdom. You just need to know that. All right. Oh my goodness, I'm going late. Okay, so uh, the verse 33. Again, you've heard that it was said that people long ago do not break your oath, but fulfill to the Lord the vows you've made. But I tell you, do not swear an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is God's throne, or by earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king, and do not swear by your head, for you cannot make even one hair white or black. All you need to say is simply yes or no. Anything beyond this comes from the evil one. So basically Jesus is saying, listen, don't swear. You're An oath, basically, they would swear oaths. You know, I swear on my mother's grave, right? Or I swear on this, you know, and that's what we do, right? Like this is serious, right? Other things I may lie and cheat and steal, but now this one is serious. And what Jesus is saying is that let everything be serious, right? If you're going to say something, let your word be your word. Don't go back on your word. Let your reputation and your word be your oath. So you don't need to swear an oath to anybody else. And this ties in with the eighth commandment. Do not bear false witness against somebody else, right? Let your word be your word. And again, this is not, you know, it's part of living in a civil society and all this, but at its root, it's for us. Because if you're a person where your word always means your word, that people can trust your word and take it to the bank and know that you will always follow through with your word. It just makes your life so much better because you don't even need the legal system. You don't even need the courts. You don't even need all the other things that are necessary in a civil society because if you give your word to somebody and if they've known you for 10, 20, 15, 20, however many years they've known you and you never go back on your word, and it's just a handshake or whatever. Well, not a handshake today because we're in coronavirus, right? Word. Social distancing handshakes, whatever that is. If you live your life that way, it goes so much better for you. So much better for you. This is the way you should live your life. You can live your best life by just being who you are. And if you say something and you shake hands on it or whatever, that that is the way it is. And um, that's what Jesus is saying. We're going to go on. Verse 38. You've heard that it was said, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. That is Old Testament stuff. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn in the other cheek also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who asks you and do not turn away for the one who wants to borrow from you. The punishment is Exodus 21. Okay, so... Yeah, so verse 38, an eye for an eye. Now that's all from Exodus 21. All of these things are from Exodus 21. But, and these are hard punishments. But you have to remember that the hard punishments are there for us to create a civil society together. But at its root, 
Um, the reason why the punishments are there initially is because God wants you to lead the best life that he has, that he has for you. Don't take somebody's eye. Don't take somebody's tooth or whatever. And, you know, these whole things about, you know, turn the other cheek and give your coat and all that sort of things. These are ways for you to live in relationship with other people because God at his root wants you to live in harmony with other people. He wants you to love other people. Um, yeah, so no system of law is perfect. So even though God gave us all these punishments, nobody ever follow, you know, no judge can mete out all the punishments perfectly. So um, there may be times where, where punishments were given in the Old Testament or whatever, and they weren't properly given. Um, so the best thing to do is to just live peaceably with other people. All right, I'm getting long here, so I'm just kind of going on. I'm going to go to the last part, and that's this. 43 on, verse 43. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Okay, love your neighbor for sure. Hate your enemy? I guess that's the opposite of love your neighbor. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good and sends the rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? Be perfect therefore as your heavenly Father is perfect. So what Jesus is saying is just live in a peaceable, loving relationship with as many people as you can. One of the marks of being in the kingdom of heaven as you grow and your root system goes deeper and you live a life of faith, understanding that God, hey, Amtrak's going by. Oh my goodness, 8.39 a.m. Hello, Amtrak. I can see the trains go by because my window's right here and I can see the train. Oh, that's so cool. <laughs> I wonder if I can show you Amtrak. Can you see Amtrak? Maybe not. <laughs> All right. Now you get to see my whole bedroom. Oh, sorry, my den. All right, did I? Oh, that's so cool. <laughs> so you have to know. Oh, squirrel. <laughs> All right, let me finish this. Um, one of the marks of being in the kingdom of heaven is that God loves you, right? And he wants you to love other people and live in a relationship with other people. Um, and um, that, that way you'll live the best life that you possibly can. All right? And um, he doesn't, when you um, are angry with other people, bitterly angry, uh, angry so much that you want to kill them type of angry, um, it can destroy you. It's like a burning coal in your stomach that doesn't go out. And uh, you can live your life in anger or you can forgive. Now, I'm not saying forgive and forget. I'm not even saying you tell them that you forgive them. But at some level, if somebody's wronged you, and you haven't gone to them or the courts or whatever, at some level, you have to deal with that in your life or it can just destroy you as a burning coal in your life. All of these things in Matthew 5, he's talking about the Beatitudes and these new metanoietes on the, on the Old Testament law bringing into the New Testament. They're here because he wants you to live a life in the kingdom. He wants you to change your thinking and live the way that he lived his life so that you can grow, your root system can grow, grow. You can become a huge, strong, strong tree planted by living waters 
where birds come and nest in your branches, that you bring life and joy and light and salt to the world around you. That's what he has for you. Um, so, uh, and just so you know, my wife and I take Amtrak all the time. We go to Texas to visit her parents, and sometimes we even go other places because we love the train. And I didn't even know that Amtrak was still going on. There may not be anybody on that train, but uh, that was interesting. I love it. I don't know. I mean, it's like seeing a coyote go by or a bobcat go by or something like that. Whenever I see Amtrak go by, I get just flutters in my heart. All right, so that, uh, I am sorry this went late today, um, but Amtrak went by, so, and, I'm a, and I'm a squirrel. All right, so uh, may God richly bless you. Hey, uh, find ways to go outside and just enjoy the creation that God has given you. Uh, be kind and generous. Figure out ways that you can love other people and be a good ambassador for the kingdom of God. And uh, as we end today, I'd just like to close us in prayer. Gracious God, thank you for uh, opening our mind to new ways to think of Old Testament laws. Lord, help us to follow you, to grow in our faith, uh, and to be the ambassador for the kingdom that you would like us to be. Uh, be with everybody who's suffering in this time. Uh, may that suffering produce uh, your fruit in them and in us. Wrap them with your love and your, and your peace. Um, and help us to love them, love the world. We pray these things in your name.